Hello friends, special announcement before this week's episode. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller, you know, Jeff from episode 36, former coach of the Fanshawe Falcons, LVC, Camp Madawaska, and many other teams. Well, Jeff and some amazing people started the golf brand Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer, and additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. As an official friend of Passing Dimes, Jeff would like to pass on 15% off your next order and free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason, C-L-U-B-J-S-O-N.com and use promo code DIMES at checkout. Club Jason. Join the club. Hello, everybody, and welcome back, or welcome to Passing Dimes. If this is your first episode, you definitely picked a good one because we're going to learn a lot. Today's guest is the current head coach of the Waterloo Warriors men's program. He's also an assistant coach with Team Canada's U21 or Junior National Team. Before that, he was with Wilfrid Laurier on the men's side and on the women's side. He's coached for Team Ontario at Canada Games. He's been involved with Team Alberta. He's done a ton of stuff, but I really want to get to the interview. So please welcome to the show, Shane White. Shane, thanks for doing this, man. Hey, thanks for having me. It's awesome to hear your voice. Uh, like I said, I, I'm sorry I had to start a podcast so we could talk, but it's worth it, you know, to check in with people every once in a while. Fantastic. Yeah, it's awesome. So I really want to get into your technical, tactical knowledge, like everything you've done in coaching. But I, I do have to ask because with you and I having worked together at the OVA and just having some chats at HBC and Team Ontario stuff, th- there's one story that stands out in my mind that I thought like, man, you had a really good development career. And it, it stands out to me that you mentioned between your club and high school careers, you always had a level three coach working with your team. So I'm just curious growing up, is that what maybe made you fall in love with volleyball? Is just the level of training you were given as a young athlete and just the, the level you were exposed to maybe at a young age? I think, I think for sure. I mean, there's, there's many levels to that. So I came from or come from a soccer family. So our father was the president and founder of a MT soccer association and, and all of the sons and brothers all played soccer growing up at a high level. And I had a great soccer coach. So always been around really informative coaching. And then it just happened where I grew up in Sherwood Park in Alberta, where it was a really strong um, athletic community. So the high school sports were played at a high level. There was good club access and it just kind of continued to happen. So along my my way, I've had great mentors and great coaches, but uh, really it was a high school coach, Rick Oway, who was level four, um, who was just exposing us to stuff that you'd never been exposed to um, from game plans and video and feedback and uh you know, it's just his pure determination to be successful. And that really kind of opened up my eyes. And then the further that relationship developed, he just kind of slowly started thinking about coaching. But I grew up during a really neat time in Alberta where, you know, myself, Sean Skye, Richard Schick, Ryan Marsden, geez, who else? I mean, Nathan Bennett, there's a bunch of people, Rod Durant, <clears throat> we're all just getting into coaching. So it just kind of happened where, I mean, maybe through a, just the committee everybody around me that coaching became part of the process nice yeah it's interesting to hear you talk about your soccer background because when we had pj on the show he mentioned his dad was like pumped that you know pat was going to play for manchester united someday and then he switched to this volleyball thing so i'm wondering just with your love of sports when did you make the switch that you kind of had to tell your dad you know soccer is not going to be my thing like were you in grade 9 10 11 like when did you kind of know that volleyball was what you wanted to pursue at a post-secondary level yeah i don't I mean, I made the youth national team as a soccer player, and then I got cut from the junior national team, which was a different age bracket back in the day. 
Um, but it's around like grade 11, grade 12, where I went to a, a team Alberta trial for volleyball and kind of got exposed to different kind of coaches and athletes. And, but yeah, it was just the, uh, just the excitement of a very tactical sport that you needed everybody to perform to be successful. And yeah, I'm not sure, but really, I think it's from the mentorship of coaches. So being around again, like Rick Oway, um, Ken Briggs, Lee Carter, and I mean, in Alberta, I mean, geez, we have Terry Danilek and there's Keith Hanson, who's one of the best coaches in the world, and, and Calvin Aubin and Ron Thompson. There's so many accesses to great coaches when we were growing up that it, it's hard not to be influenced by great minds. And because you were so drawn to the tactics of our sport, were you thinking about coaching at a young age? Like, were you still playing in, in, a, in a good part in your career? And already looking ahead to thinking like, man, I'd really like to start coaching or I'd really like to do this someday. Well, I got, I hurt both my knees in a training session one time. So then, you know, back in the day, you know, a third degree sprain or MSO, ACL was pretty obtrusive for the surgery. So we held off on that and never really got back to like the level of fitness and need to. But then I kind of got into the analytic side and the coaching side. And then Ken Briggs offered me an opportunity to come work at a strip park volleyball camp. I think it was like 1997 or something and uh, had a good experience there. And then we actually started coaching high school together, high school uh, women's. And uh, like for the next three years, <laughs> as him as the head coach and me as an assistant coach, he just really exposed me to a lot of neat details of the sport. And then obviously we had success. So um, anybody's love helped me have success early. It <laughs> really kind of gets that passion going so. Nice. Yeah. And just to pull on your last comment, because with my role with the beach national team and just talking about analytics, I still feel like volleyball is still progressing in that. And I, I know indoor is definitely ahead of beach, but I'm curious when you say you were in on the analytics thing in, in the nineties, really, what did that look like? Was that shot charts? Was that stats? Was that breaking down video and situations? Cause I feel like the technology now that like there, there's every university team probably has somebody who knows data volley, but at that time, was it that popular or what were the methods you guys were using and what were you looking for? Um, I mean, I think Ken was such a great communicator. So, I mean, understanding, I guess, the nuances of coaching, especially female athletes, when I was also quite young too. So, understanding that um, I, I'm a male athlete, so the game is played a little bit differently, but the skill is a skill. And then on the analytics side, I mean, just seeing, I see the game through the setter and, and through team offense, but the way that I see it, everything is around block defense. So just seeing how, you know, a certain pass and a certain part of the court would eliminate certain things or offense and how we'd have to try and change how we played in those situations. And I guess just kind of feeding that constant setters focus or setters lens that I have. Um, I just started adding in different uh, analytics when I was an assistant coach. And then as an assistant coach, it's really great because you get to watch, right? But you're not, you're not really coaching. You're not really stressed out you get to watch and take in a bunch of information and be uh, supplementary in your assistance. So it's a great way to learn for me. And yeah, so I just started putting in like at a young age, like if we pass here, here's how the tempo needs to change. And here's how we develop our principles of offense. And it just all kind of happened um, quickly while coaching high school girls. To be honest. Awesome. Awesome. And just for the record, cause I'm sure a lot of people would maybe identify you as an Ontario guy now, but you growing up in Alberta, what uh, what sparked the move here? Was it the the Wilfrid Laurier gig, or what uh, kind of caused you to become an Ontario guy and get that first coaching role here? 
Well, in two in two thousand, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, was applying to University of Waterloo for architecture, which is a difficult program to get into, and she got to the stage of the portfolio, so the final stage, and she didn't get accepted, but it was still a dream and a goal. So we just thought, let's move there. Let's go through the application process in person. Let's start tapping into you know some different professors on campus and see if we can get more influence that way. And then so we moved here. Um, we actually moved here the uh, just before the 9/11 attacks, so I'll never forget. You know the process of moving to Ontario, and then really like the the monumental moment that happened on 9/11. So that whole move kind of happened around that time. I was supposed to stop coaching because obviously coaching takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, and a lot of energy. And then around uh, October she's like, you know, get out there. So you can find somewhere to coach. You're kind of miserable right now. I'm around the house too often. So, <laughs> so it just kind of uh, accidentally worked out. So I have a funny story. Actually, I went to Waterloo first and asked the men's coach if they needed help. And he said no. And asked women's coach if they needed help. And they said no. And just uh, through happenstance, uh, I met somebody who knew, who knew Dave McIntyre at uh, Laurier. And uh, Dave gave me a chance. And uh, yeah, I kind of went forward. They were laughing at me back home because I couldn't find a coaching job here. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. And one thing, just looking at your resume, I wanted to just pick your brain on a little bit. Uh, I I think young coaches, they're always in a hurry to be a head coach, but looking at your career, you've been the the head coach, but you've also been a very valuable assistant, whether it was being an assistant to Lawson before you got the gig at Waterloo or seeing what you're doing with the national team, or even at Laurier starting off as an assistant before you took over the men's program. So, off the top of your head, or what were things that you valued that being an assistant coach means you have to do this? Because I think there is a fine line in the role where really you're making suggestions and the head coach is making decisions, right? That's always the big thing that I always find. But what can an assistant do to really add value and kind of support the head coach? And what were things that you like in your assistants or what were things that you did well as an assistant, you feel? Yeah, good question. I mean, I'm a better assistant coach than a head coach. So I'm a very good assistant coach. I I, so for me, I think out loud. Um, I'm putting out information all the time. I'm trying to put stuff into the coach's mind and then allow him or her to make the decision. So I'm keeping nothing private. Um, I sit in a different spot on the bench than the, than the head coach, so I'm seeing the game in a different way. Um, but for me, the most important thing is always having a head coach um, that dictates what your eyes are supposed to be doing. So almost like a football mentality that you have a quarterback's coach you have a D-line coach, you have a wide receivers coach, and their feedback should be based on that position. So for me, it's always been kind of based around the center team offense, uh, kind of looking at our efficiencies, and I just kept my mindset on that. Um, when I got to Chris at Waterloo, he allowed me a little bit more flexibility to interact with the team in different situations, but it was always complimentary. So um, you need an assistant coach that values that that position and understands the value of staying in their lane that they don't have to give up all the information. Um, so if I see a middle blocker making a mistake, I may let Chris know, but I'm not going to talk to a middle blocker, but I'm going to be focused on the setters and the offense and what we're trying to do. And Chris isn't going to worry about the setters and the offense because he trusts me to do my job. So having a clear communication of what your role is and then make sure you buy into that role and you keep your focus on that. So, Assistant coaches, I don't know any great head coach that doesn't have a great assistant coach. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And I definitely learned a lot when I volunteered at York a couple of times and with Wally, Hernan, Chumley, like some strong personalities and some great volleyball minds. Wally kind of set the tone for us and said, like, we can disagree in the coach's office and we can yell, shout, call each other names, do whatever. But when you're in front of the team, it needs to be a united front. So I'm just curious with your experience, again, being a head and an assistant at a super high level. What would you do if you did disagree with your head coach? Is it all just about sharing information and your point? And if they make a decision like you're all in, like it just sounds a little easier said than done for me sometimes. So I'm wondering what you do in those situations. Yeah, like I think you want to be challenged by your assistant coaches. You want to be challenged, but only when you have time for good communication. So I'm not going to challenge you in a timeout because we only have 30 seconds or a minute. But I can have a, a good conversation with you between sets when we have, you know, three minutes. Um, or I can in between matches or on the bus or at practice. Um, when it comes to the game, the head coach is only making decisions that they think is best. So my job is to try and give information to help facilitate that. And I just try and do that as much as possible. Um, but I mean, for me, it's always kind of thinking out loud. If I think internally, and I can't share anything. So I'm just always talking out loud, almost like as if I'm talking to myself, but I'm just projecting it towards uh, the head coach. So, I mean, Giovanni Gadetti, the Turkish national team head coach, he tries to change the assistant coaches every year because he wants new ideas. He wants uh, conflict. Uh, he thinks two things are going to happen. One, they're either going to completely disagree with you and the athletes are going to be like, yeah, no, that doesn't work. So we're going to go back to what we've done. Or it's going to work. And now you're just going to add a new strength. So, I mean, to me, identify your roles, but then know the communication pattern. And it's not a competition. The head coach is responsible for the team and you're responsible for, for your aspect of the team. And, and, and that's it. Nice. Well said. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I did want to pull on one of your earlier comments that, you, when you really got into coaching, it was at the, the women's level in high school. And then when you got to Laurier, you were on the women's side again and then switched to the men's role. I, I'm definitely not going to get into a better or worse argument because I think our sport is awesome. And I, and I think both genders played at a super high level. But I'm just curious, when you're coaching one or the other, what are some differences that you just need to make based on how the game is played, the physicality of each gender? Like, What are some little details that you just think the game is different because of this and we need to plan for it? Because it isn't the same, but like I said, it's not. But it's not a better or worse thing. It's just it's not the same. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the I, the skill is the skill, um, and competitive athletes are competitive athletes. But it's this the the small interaction. So, um, and I have actually found that I encourage everybody to coach both genders at some point because it only makes you a better coach um, to where we end up going. So, almost everything that I did on the women's side has made me or has progressed me on the men's side. Um, so, but for me, when I'm working with women athletes or female athletes, um, it's a little bit more one-on-one -on -one conversations. Uh, you don't have to call them out in front of the group. Um, a little bit more interaction, almost like a more of an intimate interaction, like seeing how they're doing, tapping to them, tapping them a little bit more emotionally, checking about what they're like off the court, um, trying to stop some of the nuances, like small clicks that happen a little bit more <laughs> coaching female athletes and male athletes and trying to be a bridge of good communication. And then that is playing at a pace that you can play at. So obviously um, most female athletes are not in the air as long as some male athletes. So the pace has to be a little bit different, but a lot of the principles um, move over. But to me, the biggest thing was just the uh, communication interaction. 
but determined athletes are determined athletes. So nice. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I'm curious because I, I don't know. I think Frank St. Denis says this the most. So I always credit with him with being a, like a lifelong learner, but I would put you in that boat and I'm always asking you questions and there's, there's a ton of people in the community that are just so giving with the information, but I'm curious when you got your, your head coaching role at Laurier and you're in the first chair, was there some stuff you had to filter out? Cause I think there's so much theory in our sport that sometimes doesn't apply or it might not work in your gym. So I'm curious was there a trial and error period or when you got that job, like, were you ready to go and this was your plan? Like how much did you go in with like a binder that says this is what we're going to do? Or was there some adjustment period or some learning still going on? Well, I mean, the program wasn't very good uh, when I took over. So I don't, I don't think they won a game in, in two years and the hiring process was different. So I didn't get hired until I think it was July or August. So the, the team that had just not won for, for two years are going to be the same team, um, right? There was no recruits coming in or, or anything like that. So, um, I mean, it was just a different kind of process. So I gave myself a, a three-year window to try and change how we were going to try and play. And uh, in, in interest to for Laurier, so I mean, you know, we're 0 and I think we're 0 and 17 in our last game of the year is against Western and we win in five. And uh, the team worked hard all year long and I really respect every one of those guys. We met back in the team room and I cut, I think, seven guys right after the game because they just didn't have the right attitude and work ethic um, to be like winners. So we started playing with like a faster pace. We weren't getting very many good players in the early on. And we kind of forced their adaptation to how I want to see the game played for the first little bit, see kind of what we can and can't do. Um, so, I mean, that's different than, you know, you get to Waterloo and we're interjecting a different type of offense slowly over the progression that we were there, but the team was already in a good spot and, and already competitive. So I think it depends on the phase that you're in and the, and the athletes that you have. It took me five years of glory before I finally had a full roster of recruited athletes by myself. So, yeah, and so I, it takes a long time. I hope I'm not overstepping by saying this, but just so our listeners fully understand, like, with me being around that era, like I understood that some players would just say like, Hey, I'm Shane White from Laurier. And they'd be like, not interested. Like that's how tough it was to recruit at that time where some athletes weren't even really open to having the conversation that you guys really had to work your tails off to even get recruited athletes into the program. Is that fair to say? hundred percent. Right. And then at that time, you know, I think there was only four or five or full-time coaches, um, you know, but luckily for me, like it was a time where I was young. And uh, we didn't, we don't we don't have kids, and so that kind of helped out. My wife or girlfriend, I'm still really supportive, but I had a lot of energy to spare. So you know, you'd work 40 hours off campus and come in and, and go and, and train and work until 11 o'clock and kind of do that seven days a week. But it took it took a long time. The foundation of that success, though, was that we found a group of really smart people within that team that liked to work hard, and that was kind of like one of the pillars. But everything that happened at Laurier. It was really like a launching pad for like my coach development. So I think I say this all the time, but I really didn't know. I don't know what I don't know and what I think I know. Somebody else is an expert in. So really, I don't know shit. And that was kind of like, Lori, here's how I want to play. Here are the type of athletes I want to try and get to. We can't get to these kind of athletes. So I have to change and adapt how we want to play. And we were just constantly just using like the Laurier program for the first three, three and a half years, almost like a, like a litmus test of kind of where we wanted to go. Eventually we were quite competitive the last set. And I'm hoping you can share with us because I think as sports fans know, like something that's 
maybe Bill Belichick gets a lot of credit for is he'll put a player in and they'll adapt the system to what their strengths are. Like, I think that's something he's pretty famous for, but when you're rebuilding a program and you want to run it faster, you want to play a certain way and you don't have the horses, how did you find that, that tug of war where these are what they're capable of, but I can see us training towards this, but maybe we're not going to get there. Like, I think it's important for coaches to have high hopes, but how did you keep it realistic and say like, oh, we want to run the pipe as fast as maybe Alberta's doing it. But if you just don't have the guys, you don't have the guys, right? So how did you keep it realistic, but still striving to do more and build the system that you wanted to play? Yeah, I mean, what's the what's the, the classic phrase is only do tactically what you can do technically. And uh, we changed that for the first four years there. We were like, here's what we inspire to do tactically. So we're going to have to learn to do this technically. And uh, we just tried to go a little bit faster. It actually, it continued at Waterloo. I mean, we were running a pretty fast offense at Waterloo and people were like, oh, you know, you guys have really good ball control. Well, actually, the reason why we run a fast open is because we weren't very good. <laughs> and the same thing was at Laurier. We didn't have the hitters that could score when it was one-on-one. We had no hitters that could score when it was one-on-two. So we had to play with the pace. And, and that was okay. The good thing the guys there is that the guys had no success for two years. So just having successes in the way we're training and having good periodization and them getting stronger and them getting more confident, we really, like I could convince them that going 0-12 is okay. But we laid out a path of where we're going to be and we hit our markers for the most part. Like, I think we won three or four the next year and we won six or seven years after that. And then we kind of more more often got into the playoffs and we're in a position to be successful. So so you're kind of building into it. But <clears throat> we created our style we weren't influenced by anybody else. It was how how I wanted us to play and, and the guys bought into it. So Nice, nice. And just to take a quick pause on your university coaching career, I did want to dig into your Canada game cycle because I, I feel like with the age group changing, you had a different era. So just to focus on the year where you were a head coach, I think the Canada games was a U22 or I feel like you had university level athletes and obviously there's there's benefits to both and I'm not going to rag on the current system of it being U18 but I, I find your year super interesting just based on if you could enlighten us how you did the player identification and how you got athletes at a camp and how you narrowed down the roster because I think it was just a great job showing that you know the OVA hired a coach who was invested but you also had a plan and, and everybody got a shot and you find some diamonds in the rough that maybe weren't good 60 new players, but man, they were good 20 year olds. So how did that process come together? Like when you interviewed for the job, did you have this plan in place of what you were able to execute with team Ontario? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, first of all, Canada games is just one of the best and most special events you could ever go to. So if you had any kind of coaching aspirations, if that's the pinnacle of your coaching, then congratulations. Cause that's an amazing event. But uh, for me, it was just a process from 05 to 09. 05, I was an assistant coach with Chris Lawson and Mark Ainsworth and, and got to experience what Canada Games was like. And that really got me excited to then be the head coach. But uh, a lot of the success that we, we had around that program is really from Dustin Reed, who at that time, I guess he'd be called like the technical um, manager of the OVA or technical director of the OVA. And Dustin's a great friend of mine. Um, but uh, I remember that we, he interviewed both myself and Jeff Chung to be the head coach, and he made us choose. <laughs> so <laughs> we kind of, we had a political conversation, like, you know, I was a assistant coach here, so I think we just went, and Jeff was the one after me, and it just kind of worked out that way. But I had the right staff, and then uh, a lot of the work was actually just the communication and relationship with the, uh, 
the coaches at the university level because it was U21. So having their buy-in of getting extra reps and, and uh, it was a lot of extra work. I mean, sending letters to, you know, Brenda Willis at Queens at that time and saying, you know, here are the benefits of these players that can come and train these extra months for you. And we'll make sure we manage the jump load here, 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 and, and kind of putting out a scientific and, an analytical version of what we wanted to try and do. And they were excited by that. And, and so, yeah, there's a lot of communication, a, a lot of battles, but uh, the funnest part probably for that process was the year before Canada games, we trained for two and a half months and we had no competition. We just trained with, I think it was 22 athletes and uh, they worked hard five days a week in Toronto. And we just took all um, analytics and uh, it was almost like a, a summer-long trial. And then we made a commitment in 09 at Canada Games that if you made the junior national team, you were not going to play Canada Games. And some of the guys were so committed to the OVA that uh, I remember Sander Ratzup and Jeremy Grunveld both chose to play Canada Games over the junior national team. And I just thought like, that was like some special things were starting to happen there. So it's an awesome, that was an awesome group. I really... Uh, look back at that group uh, finally and that was an amazing trial we had uh, 54 athletes all university college level um, that were playing across the country and uh, we cut some some really 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 special players and I'm curious what went into the decision about the junior national team or Canada games decision was that just a holistic decision about like you're going to have one high performance experience like you got to choose yours because I think that's easier said than done because you're going into Canada games and you're basically saying Sorry, Joran Zeman, you're, you got to pick one or the other. Sorry, Michael Amoroso. Like you're actually thinning the herd a little bit and taking away studs from your own roster. So I'm curious what went into that decision because I don't believe other provinces did this, did they? No, we were the, we were the only ones. And I guess I've always just termed myself to be kind of a big pitcher. So a big pitcher thinker. And for me, it only made the base of our pyramid wider in Ontario and in Canada. So it made no sense for... Uh, you know, Yorin's a great example. I mean, no sense for Yorin to play junior national team and then come back and, and further play in Canada games. He's already getting an amazing experience. He's already getting a lot of reps. He's already playing at a high level. But it made us better to, you know, have a Tyler Santoni who was still like kind of a raw middle slash right side. And if we had Yorin do both, then Tyler Santoni would not get the extra training. So it just made me like, me think like the the bottom or middle of the pyramid would just be a little bit stronger, a little bit wider. Um, and obviously, all these players were coached by great university coaches, so they were going to have great development regardless of. But it just made no sense to to have a double experience. So we it wasn't as if athletes were choosing. It was we did have a couple of make a choice, and they were upfront with that. Um, both Jeremy and and uh, Sandra Ratzup were were on the team in 05 that got a bronze. So they felt that they wanted another candy game experience and they were going to be captains. And I think they were a little bit more attached to myself and the program. But, uh, you know, I think it was just the fact that it just, it just is a good decision. And then plus, you know, what I didn't want to happen was somebody be trained with us for two and a half or two months. And then two weeks before candy games get cut because a better player at air quotes is coming in from the junior national team. And we really kind of built this kind of togetherness and family and, and the values. And those guys worked really hard. Um, it was a really, really, really cool experience, to be honest. And, you know, they're, t- they're 20, 21 years old. And 
you know, different uh, social experiences on weekends for them and trying to manage them in downtown Toronto and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but uh, I look back on that program with a lot of, uh, a lot of joy. So, and we cut, I mean, we cut some great, great players. And uh, it was a good experience. And it was funny because we were the only team at Canada Games that had no junior national athletes. So, you know, our, our first match was against, uh, it was either Newfoundland or New Brunswick, and there's Max Burton playing right side for them. And, you know, we played uh, Manitoba, and, uh, you know, they had three guys, Chris Swath, Pitchkey, and uh, oh, who was the middle they had? Oh, um, shoot, I'm not going to think of it either. Yeah, he's <laughs> our national team. And then, so, right, so, yeah, like three guys. And it was just like, but we had a good personality, good team, and we still had really good athletes, too. But, uh, yeah, an interesting story from that, you know, that kind of games. On the women's side, Team BC, I think, had six or seven from the junior national team. And I think they finished sixth or seventh at Canada Games. Wow. Right. So an example where, like, these really skillful, competitive athletes came back to a program and either the coach couldn't handle or the team couldn't handle the, the personalities and it really kind of crumbled for them. Right? And they probably could have been tired, too. Now, I, I'm curious, like, I, I think you carry yourself extremely well when you speak, people listen, but was there ever any pressure to flip it and say, now I'm Team Ontario versus, like, I, I could just think of an Alpha University player who maybe went to Queens or Mac and said, I've never lost to Laurier. Why is Shane telling me I need to do it this way? I'm going to do it my way. Like, did you ever feel a sense that you had to win over a certain athlete or because you were prepared, you were consistent, like you believed in the message that it, that it worked out. Like, was there any, ever any challenging times working with this age group? No, I mean, you know what? I mean, it's, it's credit to the coaches that they, that they came from the programs they came from. And then also a big credit to, to Dustin Reed and Jason Japanje because they had a real um, connection with the athletes at that time, especially Dustin. He put a lot of work in during his years. So we didn't have that. And uh, what we did have, though, we had a lot of honest conversations. And, uh, you know, we didn't we didn't have too many rules either. So we weren't trying to necessarily change them um, technically. Uh, we were trying to improve their preparation in a bunch of facets. We were trying to improve, like, the high-performance lifestyle, you know, for the summer, which you really can't do as a student athlete. And we just tried to just kind of just alter like some of the small things without contradicting anything that they were, they were doing. Um, they were already very good players. So it was just trying to create that environment where having honest conversations and, and competitive behavior was, was valued. It actually happened in the team meeting really early on that uh, we were having a conversation about winning and losing and, and aspects. And I cannot remember who it was, but somebody from from McMaster said, you know, I've never lost to somebody from Queens before. And there was a bunch of Mac players and a bunch of Queens players. And it didn't lead into animosity. It led into this really heartfelt conversation about, you know, winning and losing and why in the process. And instead of being conflicted or embarrassed, they embraced it. And, you know, it was just really neat seeing athletes at that age group that uh, were really bought into representing the OVA to the highest level. I mean, you really think about it. At that time, like, they could have said no. They're already playing university. They could have played junior national team. Like, they could have turned their back in the OVA and say, no, we don't need that experience. We're about that. And they really gave up two summers to, to be part of it. So, and I think they really enjoyed it. So, you know, not wearing university or club clothing the whole summer and, 
and we bought extra t-shirts so there's more OVA clothing being worn and it was just really selfless group at the I think they had a really good experience too because it was a pretty neat I mean that final against Alberta there was 24 athletes there I think 22 played role wow so it was a it was, and I mean it was a different time too I mean coaching then was a little more you know in your face maybe a little more demanding a little more physical um, there were some tough lessons. <laughs> we were in the Toronto arena. We know we had no air conditioning. It was really, really hot and sweaty. So there was a lot of adversity that we went through as a group and and really embraced it as a as a group. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks for, for all you shared about that because it, I think it was a great time. And I think a lot of athletes were impressed with working with yourself and Jeff Chung. But I, I just, I needed to wonder just because of what Jeff was doing at U of T and what you did at Laurier, if anybody tried to alpha you, but it sounds like you guys had a great team culture and everybody bought in. So just, just moving along with your coaching career, one thing that I think is definitely a strength of yours and you can definitely relate to everybody because you've been a high school coach, you've been a club coach, you've university, provincial team, national team. What advice would you give to a coach about how important like a YTP or a seasonal plan is and how you break down things into cycles? Because like I said, you've done it at every single level. So I'm wondering what is your process? Like, do you reverse engineer it from like the highlight of your season and work backwards? Or how do you go about making a seasonal plan? Or what tips would you give to a coach saying like, these are the things you got to have? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I've always been fairly planned. So you only get better at planning the more you plan, <laughs> if that makes <laughs> sense. And uh, obviously, you know, at a university level, um, you know, having a yearly training plan of YTP is extremely important because the kids are really uh, accountable to the program, you know, for 12 months a year. And, and we have them for five years. That's a long time. So so there's a lot of work that needs to go into that. And then obviously for your seasonal training plan, your SCP, you know, it's just important to know, like, where do you want to go and what do you want to achieve? And you just work your way back. So here's where we want to be at the... At, um, we want to win a gold medal at nationals, which means we're probably going to have to win a medal at provincials, which means we're going to have to finish here at this tournament. We're going to finish here and just kind of keep working your way back and then just figure out what you need to do to achieve that uh, success. Um, so some plans will be, you know, very intricate and some plans could be to be very small, but just, you know, for a club coach, having your practice plan written down, like sometimes you don't see that. And, and maybe some people have the ability to to coach without having it written down, but most likely like having that that structure written down. So so being accountable to to the athlete's development is, is such a big deal. But yeah, so for me, like just being planned, we've I've never really coached aside from you know county games and, and national teams. I never really coached the best athletes. So having a plan to help us achieve success was always important to me and one of the reasons why we had we've had success however you want to defend that or define that but having a plan and then as you said reverse engineering it backwards you kind of start to plan out you know everything that needs to be done to be successful and then you also have to define that with your group so your team needs to know what success is and you know for us it is success for us is defined as being a high functioning program so so not just winning or losing, but having people that you want to be around that are smart, that are intelligent, that are humble, that are respectful. So having all that needs to be, to me, planned. Or, you know, you're just driving in a car without a map. Who knows where you're going to go? 
And when you are in those situations where you're working with athletes that maybe aren't top tier and let's use Waterloo as an example, because Alex Bolton was a really good friend. He was at my wedding. So he hopefully wouldn't mind me saying this, but his team, they didn't really have provincial team guys. They weren't top recruits, but here you are with you working with Chris Lawson. You guys are running this laser fast offense. And it's one thing to say that the Waterloo guys didn't have like the top skill, but super hardworking guys, super intelligent. So you did have some intangibles to work with. But when you come in and lay out the plan that you want to run it faster, is that just something that's like this living being and it's going to last the whole season and you're constantly tickering with it? Or is it something that you lay out and once it's established, it's ready to go? Well, I think that was like that was kind of the birth of of Chris being such a great head coach and allowing me you know, to focus on my strengths. And it happened halfway through our first year or second year together. Two significant things actually happened um, for that for that process. But the connective tissue to both of them is kind of understanding the strength of your athletes and and how those strengths can help you play at a certain pace. And again, like kind of through, you know, a periodization, we were at a point where I think we were able to then make a jump to play a little bit more exciting and um one thing that happened was maybe our statistically best attacker quit or made a tough choice to to play more beach and, and pursue that and some other academic stresses which is great for him um so that kind of forced our setter to have to share the ball in a different way which was really which is really neat and it happened kind of organically and then chris went on vacation one time over december training camp and i got to run practices and we just started playing around with it. And it just came at a point where it was just kind of adding a bit of kind of fun and, and energy to the group. And then when Chris came back, it was kind of already in place. <laughs> <laughs> it took him a little while to kind of get used to the fact that we were going to have more errors. We were going to have more uh, more inefficiencies in the first bit. But uh, the guys really enjoyed it. And I think for them, you know, as you said, Waterloo, like I'm the dumbest person on campus by, by a long way. So we have real great strength in in work ethic and intelligence. And then for them, it was something that kind of just stood them apart. Like it was a type of volleyball that only a few teams were playing and it was showcasing them that they had the athleticism to do it. So it was, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a lot of fun actually, the, the time with Chris, because as an assistant coach, I got to just focus on the setters and the offense. And I got to almost kind of become a specialized, if you will, in that, in that aspect. So obviously anyone who's worked with you or obviously just hearing the, the last half hour of you speaking, a lot of passion for the setter position and the offensive side of the game. So we recently had Sebastian Lesbridge on the show and you wouldn't have a chance to listen to it. It's not out yet. But you mentioned uh, through your friendship with Pat Johnson and just kind of working camps and stuff that he, he got to work with you a little bit. And I made the joke to Seb that I think David Doty's probably a setter that you would make in a lab based on his footwork, his positioning, like the little things he does. He just looks like a Jeff Chung or a Shane White setter where Seb isn't. Seb's going to jump off one foot. He's going to set on the way down. He's going to side set. He's just going to be a different personality. But when you're working with different athletes, do you have like a list of like what are some must haves you have to do to this position and then we can be creative? Or how do you like to break down when you're working maybe at a camp with some youth athletes and you want them to leave with a good experience? Like obviously there's going to be some technical things that certain things are better than others, but how do you give the athlete the freedom to kind of move how their body wants to work versus trying to create like robots and saying you have to do this? Yeah. I mean, I think for, it's really for all the positions, right? I mean, and Seb is a, is a, is a great center because, like Sebs is one of the few 
setters where actually his character comes through how he plays, right? Like he's kind of a, a galvanizing, funny um, guy that just leads through, to, has some really unique strengths, but he has a really fast uh, back route. So it's kind of understanding the strengths of the setters you have, but we talk a lot about the four pillars of success and the four pillars of success are preparation, fundamentals, fine detail and efficient work. And so we kind of do that process with all of our positions. So I'm really big in the preparation for the setters. Like here's how you have to look at the net and here's the four patterns we want to get really good at. Um, we never make it exact, but they always look very similar. <clears throat> and then we just start working on the fundamentals and the fundamentals Every setter has a signature, whether they're really good going forward or they're really good going back. And it's just trying to build the strengths around that. Um, so if I have a setter that's really good at making a right side set, then we're going to spend more time running middle left because they already have a really good signature going back. And then as we have the preparation in place and the fundamentals in place, then we just start looking at the fine detail of kind of how, how we want to run an offense, what we want to try and do. We always try and make it a little bit unique, you know, with pace and location and then just trying to find the efficiency of our work. So that's kind of how we do all that process. Really only the preparation part is like the one concrete stage of that development where it's like, it has to look like this. It has to be like this. And then we have principles in place in our, in our offense, and we have some other principles in place that we really value. But everything else is really kind of through discovery. And... Um, I think it's just kind of taking them in the position where they, they enjoy the success and, and whatnot. It's one of my greatest weaknesses as a coach is that I, w- I would rather play a certain style and lose than play a certain style. And, and, you know, sometimes that means we're probably going to play at a pace that's not the most efficient, but uh, we do have aspects where it helps us train, helps our black defense, it helps our, our competitive spirit. So it's trying to find that fine line. But for that position, um, preparation, fundamentals, my detail, and then efficient work is kind of what we talk about a lot. And then they're all connected to issue with compete. So like, having the values to have good competitive behavior. Yeah, let's let's go there. Is what went through your coaching career that that's like the hill you want to die on? That like we're going to play this way versus changing styles or playing a lesser way. Like what what gave you the confidence or gave you the comfort to go to terms with saying like, this is what we're going to do. And if we lose doing it, I'm fine with it versus trying to change or adapt. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're always like adapting a little bit and, and changing a little bit. It's just trying to see like how, like what, what does the top of our mountain look like for us? Um, right. Like, like who cares if we just set left side 9% of time and we get to the OUA final four. I, I don't believe we're going to win. I don't believe we're going to be in a position to win. I don't believe we can stop the other team from winning. Right. So it's, it's trying to find that, that fine line um, between like playing a certain way and, and being effective. Um, I think we've done that actually to a point until last year. And then a bunch of teams actually now all play very similar with like similar speed and, and, and preparation and fundamentals. And it, it now I'm like, oh boy, now everyone not necessarily is caught up, but now we're all playing very similar. So like, what's our evolution going to be? But we're going to try and figure that out. But I think for me, it came from coaching women. So I figured out um, for me, 
if we can put position four on the other side of the net, if we can put gaps around her and make her feel distressed, then we were going to be successful because that would mean that we're passing the ball very well and that we could run our version of the middle attack and steps and a right side and it would affect the gaps. And so that's always kind of been my mindset for like my, my, my offensive principle is if we can put position four in distress, then we're going to be really successful. And I have a hard time not still believing in that. <clears throat> if you look at the the numbers of uh, you know the most efficient attackers in the middle, second most efficient attackers the right side. If you have teams that run a lot of middle right, you know middle being middle of pipe, you're going to have more success. And you can always flip that game plan into like position two gap management and trying to go after maybe a weaker blocker over there. So it's just the principle that I have, and I've always been kind of a process person. So getting the athletes to buy into that and whatnot. And we've seen that. You see teams that um, run a slow, effective, efficient offense, but when they get to a certain stage of the year, it's hard to be successful. So, you know, we're, we're right now going through the process of trying to look at what we want us to look like. Um, we're going to have to probably reinvent ourselves here a little bit because the game has been very much commonalized uh, across the board, but we'll see what that next stage would look like for us. And have you ever been like conflicted with yourself and almost talked yourself out of these situations? Cause I think hearing your plan, it makes a lot of sense, but maybe a coach would say position four, like what if we're playing against Shanice Marcel's UBC teams? I don't want to overload position four cause that's where Shanice is. And she's the best player in the country where in your mind, say you're kind of like, yeah, she's a great player, but we're going to make her do more things. We're going to make her work hard on defense. We're going to overload that zone. So I'm just curious, like how often do you let a game plan go before you make adjustments or do you tweak it? Or is it just that simple that, you know, your team analytically when you overload area four that you have success? Yeah, I mean, I think that's like one of the goals. But I think what we what happens through the way we we train is that it makes us um, very adaptable. So we can flip. So we're not just training to um, put position four in distress. That is our overriding principle. But then we also work on putting position two in distress. And you know, we're we're not trying to find the smallest blocker. We're trying to find the uh, you know the weakest gaps. Um, or when I was coaching women back in the day, you know, we didn't have great left side attackers, but they were great passers. We were really big in the middle and right side. Um, and a lot of women in transition, when I was taking analytics at that time, were saying left side in transition. So just attacking more towards position four gaps just made them jump more. And then we would just win more matches just through nutrition. So it's just kind of like looking at all, all the times um, or all the situations that kind of will help you win the point as much as possible. But that's usually like the mindset for us is if we can do that, that also means that we're probably passing very well and our setters at the net. And those are all kind of coefficients of like our process where if I'm just setting left side efficiently, it does not necessarily mean we're passing well. Um, maybe it's just a really good setter. But uh, that's what we try and do. Now, you know, last year we didn't have great right side attacking. So that really put a lot of stress on us for me to try and find a different way. So. I mean, it's a principle, but it's an adaptable principle. Amazing. Amazing. And one thing I, I always enjoy just chatting with you, whether, again, it was at HPC or OVA or things, you're big on 
building culture through drills. And what reminded me of this during the whole COVID pause was I was listening to a podcast with Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll, and they were making jokes about like somebody put up in their weight room, only the strong survive. And it's like, well, what does that even mean? Where if you really break down your coaching philosophy and your principles, it should be actionable things and it should show up in your playing style. So with you and your coaching career, when did you come to that point that you weren't just going to have this cool slogan on the wall or you weren't going to talk about character, but it actually showed up in drills and it showed up in the way you guys played. So what, what's an example of something you believe needs to be in the culture of every team you work with? And how does that show up in a drill? Oof. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we talk, I mean, I mean, we really only have one, we have a few principles that we kind of try to live by, but the, the main one is kind of Chris, we call it loss and law, which is based off of Chris, which is don't, you know, disrespect the program. Um, so we tie that into kind of work ethic. And uh, we believe, you know, at our level, and Waterloo is a great example, that, you know, we are not going to have access to the top 10, 15, or 20 athletes, volleyball players in the country. Most likely, they're not going to be academically eligible or want to come to Waterloo, which is fine. So we have to find a way to outwork, outprepare, and outthink. So we want to try and put ourselves in positions in training where the system complements our attitude and our attitude complements the system. So we talk a lot about that. One of the quotes that we, we mention a lot is it's not about winning, but the process needed to win, which is important. So, you know what? We didn't win a lot of games last year, but we were well prepared. We fought hard. We had good stats. We just didn't find a way to win. And I can't really ask more out of the guys than to do that on a daily basis. So we just try and put ourselves in position to to we always we're always asking ourselves kind of the coefficient of why like why are we doing something and so for us it's kind of be effective plus efficient plus the coefficient of why will usually equal to uh high functioning success so that's kind of what we try and do in a bunch of our drills and a bunch of our training and whether it happens it just depends on timing and relationships you know for many years we had some really neat pieces that that fit the the style and the program and and the system really well. Now we have some really neat pieces, and now we have to try and adapt the system a little bit more to their strengths. So we're kind of in the middle here, where we're kind of going from playing a certain way to almost like a, a kind of a new rediscovery, if you will. Nice, nice. And just again, following your coaching path, one thing that I always thought was a trap, at least with my experience where you went to Ontario, is. You put all these talented athletes in a gym and all of a sudden coaches just start flying with these ideas and they want to run it super fast and they want to do all these difficult things. But sometimes that's not the system that's going to win. And sometimes you just don't have the length of training. So I'm curious when you get that U21 gig and you're on the coaching staff, again, you're surrounded with all this talent, but you got to go to an Orsica when some of these kids are still in school. So training is going to be limited or, or opportunities to build a system. So when you go into opportunities like that, are you working with the head coach and building out this YTP and what the plan is or, or it, be honest, is there a little sense of you that you get so excited that you're working with the top athletes in the country that you're going to be able to do like a lot of cool stuff? Well, I think, you know, at the national level that being adaptable is so important because I just love my time in Gano, but I mean, the A team might be pulling B team athletes for, uh, you know, DNL or due to injuries or for training. And if that happens, then the B athletes, B teams will be pulling junior national team athletes. So you have to be very adaptable. So you're, you're really almost building, you know, a, like a micro cycle 
and and really allowing for flexibility to happen. At some point, you kind of know what you're going to be and whatnot. But when you get to the best athletes, it's it's just, it's like the coaching kind of gets smaller because they have a lot of information already. They come from great programs. It's just putting in the preparation and the work. So making sure they're getting the proper touch in the right situation, looking at the analytics. You have a full-time data volley guy. So seeing where your failures are happening, train to those failures, make them into strengths, and just constantly, you know, looking at what you need to do to kind of get ready. It's a really neat program because it's a two-year program, but the first year you have to select athletes that make sure you can get a medal because you need a medal to qualify for world championships, right? <laughs> and then the second year, you're trying to select athletes that have maybe potential beyond the dream national. So there's a lot of really neat stresses that are happening throughout that time. It's a smaller cycle, but again, you know, the head coach there, you just want to try and compliment them as much as possible. So have an open dialogue and how can you um, assist them in achieving all of their goals with the program while feeding into the conglomerate that is the national team. So there's a lot of different responsibilities at, at that level. It's quite different than university. If I mean, this is not to be disrespectful to anybody at university, but if you want to be seen as a great coach at university, recruit the best players. I mean, it's just that simple, right? I mean, it's, it's other than Larry McKay, <laughs> who, who is always seems to be, you know, um, very successful. It is just, you know, recruit the best players and then build a system around them. And then, you know, really it's the coaches within the coach that kind of see like, oh, what they're trying to do and how they're trying to do it of that. But when you had access to the best athletes, like we were running at that fast on the junior national team because everybody was touching close to 12 feet. So it felt faster because they were touching it higher. And it's making sure that, uh, you know, Michael Dahaniak doesn't need a certain set that's really fast because he has really neat hand-eye cremation. They can hit some pretty funky angles because he's pretty powerful and pretty high. So he needs a set that's very consistent and he can score compared to maybe at university where the setter has to create the scoring opportunity compared to the national team where the hitter um, has a little bit more skill and ability to score. Yes, definitely. Well said. And there, there's one comment I want to pull from you and I, I for, I'm going to get the timeline mixed up, but like, cause you've done so much, you work with our national team, but people should understand that you've also gone on trips and you'll go to Italy and you'll shadow a coach or you'll work with Glenn. But one comment you said that kind of stuck with me, cause me being a baseball guy, I love the reference of somebody's a chucker versus a pitcher. And I think we were talking about Matthias Elser and you mentioned that some Italian coach had identified and said, that's the youngest I've seen a setter versus a volleyer for Canada. And even like TJ going, through the system and his development he wasn't known as an international setter till later in life so i'm curious what does matthias elser do so well or what do international coaches expect from setters before they're like really a guy and can manipulate and do certain things yeah well matthias matthias is a good player i mean he comes from a great family he's confident and humble and he was or is a non-specialized setter so i mean i think he was an attacker and an libro for the for the Cannes Games team, right, for Alberta. So, and then he became a setter, you know, after that. So he has a really neat skill set. He has international spin serve that he can move around, especially to position one, which is great. Um, he's a very good defender, and he is good in two situations. He's very good on a four pass, and he's very good on a two pass. And those are pretty neat strengths to have as an international setter. But uh, yeah, he kind of has the, the whole toolbox. 
what I, what I like about Matthias is that he doesn't talk a whole lot. He leads by example, but a very consistent uh, setter to, to both contenders and just has a real mind for the game. I mean, he, you know, he left high school and went to Gatineau in grade 12. Um, they brought down his hands a bit for a bit more control. Like he's invested in the sport at a high level and he's still a good student too. So yeah, I mean, I think what he was doing really well that got recognized by the other coaches is that he was maintaining a, a hittable tempo and not slow, not fast in different situations. And he was willing to make the difficult set not based on score, but based on his preparation. So he did a, he did a really good job for us for two years at Narsica. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny that if you try one world championships, I would like the opportunity to go back. I mean, not too often, uh, coaches have events that they want to do over. We probably have a lot of games and sets we want to redo, but I mean, for us, we lost our captain, Michael, to a hip injury two weeks before. And then we lost our L2 to an ankle like a day and a half before. Brody Holper was coming back from uh, an ankle injury. Our L3 at World Championships, you know, separates and breaks his finger on a coverage. So, we you know, now we're playing Italy, Brazil, Poland, Cuba with our L3, L4 and our backup right side. <laughs> I mean, so it was, uh, it was pretty neat. I think the coaches at that tournament saw how Matias was still running an effective offense with a with a, a unique complementary of attackers yeah you just you mentioned something there that i kind of want to take a, a jump down the rabbit hole that you mentioned because you had a data volley person you're talking about four passes and two passes and i think that's that's always the challenge in sport right that i think when you go to tryouts and very good stands out and very bad stands out but how important was it for you guys you mentioned like using data to figure out what some weaknesses are but just to identify that, man, when we're not passing well, this kid is still slinging it. We're still in system. He's still putting the hitter in a position to succeed. So is that something that coaches should be doing at every level, knowing that like, okay, everybody's pretty good when things are optimal and you're in system, but when things break down, how can we still earn these points? Like, it's just fascinating to know that you had a list of probably all the setters and got to know that summer and who's doing well on a four pass, a three pass and a two pass. Is that fair to say? hundred percent, right? And I think you can do that yourself, right? Like you can train as a coach or you yourself can take those analytics. So everybody is going to look really good and be fairly efficient on a perfect pass. It's the slightly non-perfect and the ones where it's a little bit more athleticism needed to make a good set. And that's, to me, like that's the game now. Offensively, how efficient can you be when you're attacking off a two pass or a two dig? And conversely, how efficient is your defense or in transition when block defending against a two pass or a two dig? And to me, that's the story of the game, right? It does, you know, you're, you're only in a system so much. And, you know, especially thinking about, again, I always go back to my time coaching women, you know, rallies are long. Well, the longer the rally goes, the further the ball comes off the net. And also now we're always on the attack line setting. So what can we do? How, what can we run? What are the variations that we can try and do? And and that's in the guys game now too, right? And so our first cycle, you know, we had Matias, Tom Sora, and uh, Max Anguini. And those are three completely different setters. Tom had a good spin serve. He's a really good high ball setter. Somewhat efficient in full system. Matias was the best setter there. And then Max had a great relationship with a right side player and had a really good serve off the bench. So they complemented our training. And then the summer after that, um, you know, Tom 
did a little bit better his development. And then Colin was our, our setter that we got in there. And he was just more physical, a better blocker, and has a really high ball contact. So they all have different strengths, but they all feed into the system the same way. So I think as a, you know, for me, always having that information of what the setters can and can't do um, is so important. So you can't force your system, but kind of know what the setter needs to be able to do within your system. And I say you're, you're off the net a lot more than you're on the net. And th- this might be too hard to answer on maybe a podcast. Maybe we should donate a whole episode to this, but I'm curious, everyone values decision-making with setting, but when you're working with a young athlete and maybe they don't even know that part of the game or they haven't figured that out about themselves, are you providing certain rules, almost like an if this, then that statement? Like if the pass goes here, here's what we want to do. And then you kind of just release the reins a little bit and give them a little bit more creativity. Like how could a coach go about creating these things? Because every time we talk about a setter on the show, it's always, oh, they're so tactical, they're decision-making. But to me, that has to start somewhere. So if you're coaching a 14U, 15U, 16U athlete, are you kind of not putting them in a box, but again, giving them this, if this, then that, and then releasing it or giving them three options, four options. Like how do you go about training this tool that seems to be a value for every single setter at every single level? Well, I mean, I think we have, we have certain things that, that we value. So if you get a very fast or flat pass, then you can only set left side. So we want to try and go speed to speed. And we're going to try and use geography and length of the front row to try and have a gap on the middle. Um, we're not going to slow the ball down and try and catch up our middle or catch up our right side. So like that's a rule where if this happens, this is the only outlet that you're allowed to have. And, uh, you know, if the pass is off the net, and uh, we want to try and high ball step to the inside shoulder. So if we have a a lefty on in position four and a righty in position two, then we have no inside shoulder to set to. If we have a lefty in position four and a lefty in position two, then we're only going to high ball set to the lefty in position two. Um, so we have certain rules that we have in place that, uh, you know, complement the reasons why. Um, but I think, you know, for us, it's just kind of making them think a little bit. And you can do that in training and, and a lot of games. You know, here's where the weakest gaps are. Um, how many times did you set left side in that set? Um, why did you not run more middle? Right. So we don't try and give rules of where to set and where the distribution needs to be. We talk about distribution and how we want to have certain goals in each rotation. But really, you want your setter to, to make the most athletic decision they can based on their training and their preparation. But if we do have, you know, if the ball is passed just behind the setter, then obviously running the pipe is going to offer more gaps. Obviously if the ball is passed to position two and making the long set, it's harder for the middle to get out there and close. So it's just trying to put ourselves, make sure they understand that we want to really get setters manage gaps is we want to try and put the ball in the biggest gap or the weakest gap as much as possible. And and then just kind of keep questioning them as to why they made those decisions. Eventually, setters will start playing the game kind of the way the coach and the system dictates. And just listening to hear your, your passion for the tactics and how good of a planner you are, is it fair to say that your game plans, like this is all front-loaded? Like I, thanks to COVID, there's been so many good courses and webinars. And I was watching one on Nick Nurse, the Toronto Raptors coach, and he's like, 
I think some people have an impression that basketball coaches go into a timeout and they drop this magical play that no one's ever seen before. But he's like, we just call a play. Like we have dozens to choose from, but we call a play that we've been doing since training camp. So I'm curious with the level of planning you bring that if you're going to play against, I don't know, university ABC and you say, we want to overload zone two, that you guys have been doing that since training camp and it's, it's comfortable for the athletes. Like how much front loading are you doing for every situation that might come up? Or are there just some volleyball truths that you kind of build into no matter what? Yeah, I mean, we try and put ourselves in position in training. In, in every training, regardless of the time of the year, there's always going to be some sort of competition. Um, and then obviously, as as our structural tolerance gets bigger, um, we have more team competition. But it's, it's kind of analytically keeping a track of how many times have we worked on this situation, how many times have we worked on this situation, so that when we do come to that competitive situation, that we have spent time in and, and the athlete's comfortable executing. So I guess we talk about that a lot, you know, and then it's, it's funny. Like, I think, you know, one of the, you know, coaching weaknesses at the club level is that coaches have a lot of information, which is amazing, but they overshare it and, and they talk a lot. Right. So it's kind of as the, the more you coach and the higher the rankings you coach and the better players you coach, the less information you share. <laughs> right. And it's like the younger you coach and, and the, the least information you have, the more information you share. And it's just trying to find that, you know, that uh, the athletes know what they want to try and do. You just want to try and give them the information to assist them through that, that process. And they can also make all the right decisions and still not win the point. So there's so many different ways you want to you wanna look at that. So hopefully our athletes are prepared that we have the adaptability and flexibility that we can um, kind of dictate what we want to try and do. And until the other team shows us that that's not a weakness for them, or at least not for the night. So. <laughs> that's so funny. This wasn't in our, our brief outline we did before the show, but it just reminds me when you used to do setting clinics in Waterloo and you mentioned you got access to basically like a co-op student or an intern and they were counting reps. And I believe at your setters clinics in one hour, they had like three times the touches they were getting in a club practice. So I'm curious with the pace you like to run practice in your go, go, go style do you leave room for one-on-one -on -one conversations or, or how often are you stopping practice to address the team versus like, we're going to have a meeting before we're going to do this. And then when we're in the gym, like we're in the gym, balls are in the air. Like how do you find the balance of feedback versus like the, the reps? Like, cause I think the athlete needs to know clearly what's expected from them, but they also need the touches to get better. Yeah. I mean, that's a good, good question. I mean, I think everybody's environment is different and that environment changes like on a daily basis, especially when you're working with university athletes, because, you know, maybe depending on the university you're at or depending on the athletes you're working with, you know, they could have 40 hours of class. They could be coming off co-op, um, you know, regardless of the age uh, they might have family issues. They might have uh, boyfriend, girlfriend issues. They might have teacher issues. And there's, there's so many levels of interaction. So, so something that I try and do is uh, Monday, Tuesday, I try and interact with every athlete at least once. And, and that kind of early week interaction is like, you know, how was the weekend? What you do? What's it look like? What's it look for you academically? And that interaction has a physical component where you give them a high five or a hand on the shoulder and making sure that they, there is an element where you've connected with every athlete. And all the coaches that I work with, we're all trying to do that within that, that kind of two days. So, you know, I don't work with the middles one-on-one -on -one that often, but they've all had some sort of interaction with me 
and kind of seeing what they're at and, and stuff like that. I think that for me, I don't, I try not to stop the practice that often, but when I do, it's just because we kind of maybe lost a little bit of our focus and we're probably a little bit fatigued mentally from our academic schedule. So it's just trying to like stimulate something, um, whatever that is. We don't talk a lot in between breaks. We don't talk a lot uh, during water. Um, we kind of have the same situation when we're playing. You know, if it's a timeout and we're winning, then, uh, you know, we'll just give one or two things to win the next point. If it's a timeout and we're losing, then I'm going to start to talk to individuals and try and reconnect with them. So I think the situation is always changing. But, yeah, for me, it's, it's um, you know, can I use my voice in a way where we're still getting the reps? And, yeah, so I, we kind of talk less. Um, we, and we try and, I don't know if you will, like try to be efficient with our time, even though it seems like we have a lot of time, we don't really have a lot of time. Right. So it's like trying to just be efficient with our, our time as much as possible. And, uh, we call it, uh, um, word economy. So I say to our coaches, like, say, let's say more with less. Like, can you have a description in three words, not 10 words? And we're just trying to use like a word economy as much as possible. So the athletes have just time to reflect and, and relax and compete and all that other kind of stuff. So. Well, my friend, this is amazing. And I feel like we could go another three hours just talking about volleyball, but I know you got other stuff to do. So we'll have to get you back on the show a little bit later, but thanks for all that you shared because it, it sounds like you're, it's obviously you're, you're passionate about coaching, but you've broke down everything into chunks and, and you've obviously got some feedback loops for yourself and you're a great mentor and always willing to share. So Thanks for coming on today. But one thing we're, we're making a tradition on the show is just to end with a funny story. So you've, you've played at a high level, you've coached at the highest levels, but volleyball is kind of a funnier odd sport where maybe something's happened along the way that maybe you could just give us a quick laugh before we let you go. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of funny stories around the 2009 Kennedy game group, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe a funny story is, uh, I was leaving the OBA and I want to work at Waterloo and, uh, I had put in my contract uh, professional development. Um, so through an LP relationship with Glenn, I was able to go to Turkey for uh, 10 days or nine days. Um, and I had never been to Turkey before. So I uh, packed up and had a nice flight to uh, Istanbul. And then from Istanbul, there was a, a domestic flight to um, Izmir. Um but uh, at some point, because I was the only international traveler on the domestic flight prior to Turkey, I had to go down a different hallway than everybody else. And this is the longest hallway I've ever seen, and there was no lights on. So every time you stepped forward, the light in front would come on, the light behind would go off. And it was just the creepiest thing, and I had no cell service, and I had my coaching backpack. And I swear I walked down this long, dark hall um, for like 10 minutes. And eventually I get to the end and it's a door that wouldn't open properly. And now all the lights are off. I had to push a little bit harder. And on the other side, it's just Glenn sitting waiting for me. (laughs) (laughs) I was freaking out. I was like, oh, completely sweating. And yeah, I was like, oh, okay, I guess you're okay now. Did you ask Glenn if he had to go down the creepy tunnel at one point too? Like, does it get normal after a while? <laughs> I was just like, what is with that, Glenn? <laughs> so, but, but 
No, it was, uh, and then of course, Turkey was just an amazing experience. So it was, uh, but it was, it was funny. Um, just like for, it was probably only like five or six minutes, but it felt like hours. And I was just, I've never been in a hall that was that long and dark and the way it was working out. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was all for nothing, to be honest. <laughs> oh, that's another good one to add to the list. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that and taking a deep dive into the technical tactical. I definitely learned a lot and I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this one. So thanks for taking the time, buddy. No, I mean, uh, I think for everybody right now, like, thank you for, for creating this. And uh, after the invite, I, I know for me, like on my runs and my walks and the combination, I like tapping into the podcast and listening to people. And you've had some pretty cool guests on it just reminds me how small the volleyball community is in, in canada so thank you for for creating this and helping us all through this kind of uh amazing time that we're all in so. yeah thanks for that i appreciate it yeah we've been lucky to get some guests like you and some high caliber people and just keep learning and idea sharing no it's it's going really well the volleyball community is nice we don't get too many no's we get some people who don't want to be on recorded audio because maybe they got some funny stories but we don't get flat out told no not interested very often so we're, we're pretty lucky to be part of this awesome sport for sure i think our sport's cool that way right like i think at the highest level they're so selfless and if anything we can learn at our level that it's it's good to be selfless and help everybody through, so 